Well, we've just sung a prayer for God's help as we look at his word. So please would you turn with me to page 1139. And we're going to be spending most of our time looking at that um, over the next few minutes together. Acts chapter 2 is our reading for, for all of these five weeks as we look at five marks of a healthy church. And we're going to return to it each week and then springboard out from that to, to other places, including this uh, passage here in, Acts, in, in Romans chapter 12. Acts, chap, Acts chapter 2 tells us how the early church were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to one another. And I wonder whether you would say that love and devotion to one another mark us out as a church. Because according to Paul in the reading that we heard from Romans, it is non-negotiable. It's commanded. And when you think about it, loving one another is one of those things that's hard to disagree with, isn't it? Don't we all agree we should love one another? In fact, wouldn't most people, Christian or not, agree that loving people is a good thing? You know, it's like saying the sky is blue, circles are round, English weather is usually disappointing but occasionally glorious. Love is a good thing. We can all agree on that. But the thing about the command to love one another, to be devoted to one another, is that it's not a theoretical thing. It's actually about these people right here, right now. And the people who aren't in this room right now, but are part of our church family. And it's often been observed that while we're usually more than happy to proclaim that love is a great thing, a beautiful thing, ask me to love a specific person or or a specific group of people with all their particular foibles and sins and weaknesses and reasons to find them challenging and difficult. And actually, that is a far harder prospect. Isn't that right? We're going to get straight into looking at this love that he commands with the three headings that you can see on the back of the notice sheet, the yellow piece of paper start to think together about whether this does mark us out as as a church and whether it can mark us out. So first of all, devoted love. What kind of picture of love emerges from these verses in Romans chapter 12 on page 1139? Is it a fluffy, sentimental thing, a feelings thing? Well, it's much more than that, isn't it? Look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Can you feel the passion here as he writes? Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's the devotion word. It's sometimes said in the context of human relationships that loving someone is not the same as liking them. You know, well, you don't have to like someone in order to love them, we sometimes say to each other. She really irritates me with her lack of self-awareness, but, you know, she's part of my small group So I nobly grit my teeth and choose to love her, we say. And in one sense, you know, I guess that's better than just sort of falling out with people all the time, isn't it? But is that what Paul is describing here? 
sincere love. We, we all know what fake love looks like, don't we? You know, it's, it's saying one thing in the person's presence, another thing behind their back. It manipulates to serve its own ends rather than genuinely seeking the good of the other. How easily do we fall into that, those patterns? Especially with those that we might want to say that we aim to love but we struggle to like. Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, there are different words for love in the original language, and they are different here between verses 9 and 10. The brotherly love described in verse 10 isn't erotic, romantic love, and it isn't even sort of sacrificial, noble, undeserved love in verse 10, but it's a kind of natural love that arises simply through a natural connection between the lover and the object. You know, it's the love between parent and child, or owner and pet, or the love for a certain spot on the heath where you love to linger in the sunshine, or the love for a particular old and well-worn cardigan. In other words, the love in verse 10 is a kind of love that is meant to come easily, naturally, because of the pre-existing relationship. It's not a kind of hard-nosed, I have decided to love you through gritted teeth. It's not that kind of love at this point. What does that mean then? It means the love between God's people is meant to arise naturally from the fact that we are a family, whether we like it or not. If we're trusting in Jesus, we are a family. In the same way that you ideally love your parents, your siblings, your children, if you have them, have that devoted love for one another in the family of God. And this is not the kind of love where you can love but not like. And, and you'll probably say to me, well, you know, I can, I can think of lots of relationships where that's exactly what I do. And Paul is saying perhaps that might be true generally with relationships in the wider world. But it can't be true in the church. Of course, if somebody sins against you, especially if it happens repeatedly, Well, it's hard to both like and love, but that's where you need to call in help, that the New Testament will not let us fester in resentment against fellow believers. If you have an issue with somebody, don't just sit there pretending to love through gritted teeth. Get help from a trusted Christian friend, from a church leader. Paul doesn't give us a choice. He commands it. And it may also mean from time to time that we call someone out. We get alongside them and we say, in brotherly love, sisterly love, that behaviour is not honouring God. That is what families do. They love one another enough not to let each other slide into habitual sin, knowing that the human heart is blind a lot of the time, that we're usually quick to justify ourselves, quick to blame others. This kind of brotherly love will stay the course. It will go on loving even when the response you get back is difficult to deal with. The result will be honouring one another above ourselves, says Paul as he goes on. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means even when it's undeserved. And especially when that's the case. You see, it's easy to love and honour the lovely and the honourable, isn't it? Nobody has a problem doing that. It's far harder to honour the person who, frankly, is a bit of a fool or or even who has wronged you in some way. You know, in your office or at school, 
such a person would be sidelined or ridiculed, perhaps, for being permanently late or disorganised or untidy or whatever you might want to pick on. And they would certainly be the object of laughter at the water cooler. But in the church, honour one another. And so he goes on. There, there are many things here in this passage, aren't they? Each of them we could spend a long time on. But look, look just a couple more. Verse 13, practice hospitality. Again, what, what, what might he mean by that? Does, that? does that just mean sort of, you know, do the dinner party thing with people of a similar age and stage? You know, pull out all the stops, show them who's the hostess with the mostess, just like the rest of North London does every Friday and Saturday night. Is that Christian hospitality? Or is verse 16 what we need to hear? Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. The New Testament has lots to say about the danger of love that singles out certain types of people and ignores others. The Apostle James in his letter has a stinging criticism of churches where the rich are made to feel especially welcome and given the best seats and the highest honour, while the poor are asked if they wouldn't mind staying out of sight. That's not love. That's not honour, says James in his letter. And, and Paul is saying the same thing here in Romans. That is favouritism. That is pride. It is simply importing the world's values into the church. All this hospitality then, it's opening our whole lives and sharing our whole selves with one another. It goes far beyond dinner parties or lunches or whatever it would be. As, you know, as great as those things are. Wouldn't it be sad if some church somewhere had lots of hospitality going on, but the singles only ever hung out with the singles, the marrieds only ever hung out with the marrieds, and life was so compartmentalised and overscheduled that people had very little time at all to share with one another. Well, sure, that's exactly what the culture around them would expect them to do and how it would expect them to behave. That's what everybody's doing, they, people would say, but there was no attempt to challenge that culture, to live distinctively, to devote themselves to one another in a way that the watching world could never understand. Wouldn't that be sad? But the bar is so high, we might say. You know, it's all very well to lay out these extraordinarily challenging definitions of Christian, genuine Christian love. Where can we find the resources? Where can we find the motivation to love one another like this? Well, we need to see, secondly, in these verses, a devoted saviour. Devoted saviour. It's right to read verses 9 to 16 primarily as a description of how Christians ought to be with one another. That is what Paul is doing, this, writing this for. But it's also possible to see in these verses a description of how one man actually was. In many ways, this is a description of Jesus, isn't it? If you look at these verses. That sense of genuine, other-person-centred, self-sacrificial, devoted love. We have a saviour who devoted himself to us. And in fact, that is what all of Romans has been about up to this point. Paul outlines 
the gospel that Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He gave himself up so that when sinners put their faith in him, they are declared right with God. They are justified. That's been his argument. And then after 11 chapters in Romans of, at times, dense argument, in chapter 12, verse 1, he starts the application. And so he says, look, just glance up at verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why then should we devote our bodies to, dis- to serving God, which includes loving one another, as he goes on to say? Why should we do that? In view of God's mercy. One time, Jesus was visited by a woman who was known as a notorious sinner a prostitute of some kind. And she anointed him with an extravagantly expensive bottle of perfume. The equivalent of thousands and thousands of pounds worth of perfume. She just broke open the bottle and poured it all over him. And the Pharisees who were watching say, what an absolute waste of perfume. What a waste of money. And doesn't he realise what a dreadful sinner this woman is? And Jesus says this, in summary he says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. You see, if you've had a great debt forgiven and paid, you will love extravagantly. And so Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's as if he's given us a new currency to spend. You know, before we had this, the old currency that was me-centred, all about what I can get out of the situation. You know, I'll go the extra mile if you go there first. I'll volunteer if there are people to watch me do it. I'll serve on my terms. And that currency was of limited value and was increasingly difficult to spend. But Jesus has showered on us a new currency, a currency marked by love and devotion to others. He's given himself for us in, in, in dying on the cross. That's what he's done for us. And now he's saying, go and do that for others. Spend this currency that I've filled your pockets and your bank account with. You are loved. Now love like that. And so we find the resources to love sincerely and not through gritted teeth in that love that he's shown to us. If our love for our brother or sister in God's family is cold, well, we need to go and spend some time with God in his word. We need to draw afresh on the love that he has shown to us. Do we deserve that love? No, we don't. Are there things that we have done that would have hurt our Heavenly Father? Yes, there certainly are. So now we show that love to others. It's striking how verse 11 then follows. Verse 10, if you look, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. You see, love for God, he's saying, goes together with love for our brother and sister. The more you fix your eyes on him, the more you will find the resources to love like this. And so we need to pray. Verse 13, be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And it's become popular sometimes in Christian circles to say, well, God would never ask me to do something I don't feel like doing. 
Well, I can't love this person. It's impossible. But since when did the Christian life amount to just doing the things I'm already capable of doing in my own strength? God says to us, I have loved you. You who rejected me, I sent my son to die for you. So pray until you believe that you can love with the love that you've been shown by God. And do that not just in the general sense, do that in the specific sense with the person that you struggle with, if there is that person. So devoted love, devoted saviour, and then... There's a further motivation here, devoted church, a further motivation in these verses and across the New Testament. You see, Jesus' love for us is a kind of individual motivation. As I consider, how can I personally love other people more? Well, the answer is by remembering how much he loves me. But there's a corporate motivation as well, remembering who we are as God's people. If you were here uh, last autumn, we were looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we saw how the church is meant to be a scale model of eternity. People united under one head, under Christ, for eternity. And we had that thought, if you remember, if you were here, that if you don't like church, you're going to hate heaven. Not because heaven will be full of red chairs and biscuits and coffee but because it will be a community of people united under Christ. And that is what the church is meant to be now. So start getting used to it. That's the point, isn't it? So that is one picture of why we need to be devoted to one, be one, another, to one another now, because we will be then. But then Paul puts it in a similar way here in verses 3 to 8 in, in this chapter. Just glance over those verses. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. And you see, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so your arm is not the same as your leg and and so on, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. See that do do you see this? Being a loving community isn't just a sort of nice thing to do, it is what God is doing in the world. He is building this body of Christ in preparation for eternity. This is who we are. So so often we approach church like the rest of the world approaches most of life. We approach church as consumers. So our first question is, what's in it for me? Is it meeting my needs? And if it is, then great. But if it isn't, well, then much like we might quit the gym if The classes on offer weren't quite good enough and we found a better selection up the road. Well, we do the same with church. We go hunting elsewhere. Now, you can leave a church for good reasons. Maybe you need to relocate to a different country or a different city, perhaps. But you can also leave a church for bad reasons, as a kind of dissatisfied consumer, looking for better music, better coffee, better atmosphere, even better sermons. And I can guarantee you'll always be able to find better sermons if you want to go looking for them. Or it might be for better love. Someone might say, you know, I want to find a church that will really love me. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the issue is, once we are committed 
to a particular local church. You know, recognising, of course, people will you know, look around a bit when they come into an area and they'll come and go a bit while they figure out where they can commit. But once we are committed to a particular church, we are part of the body. We're not a consumer. We are a body part where our role is not to think, how can this group of Christians serve me best? But how can I serve them? How can I be devoted to them as a part of the body? And removing a body part, when you think about it, is incredibly painful, isn't it? Of course it is. Well, what then is the purpose of God building this body where we each have a part to play and we need to be devoted to one another? The point is, he is building that body in order to reach the world. We saw this in in Genesis a a, a few months ago. In Genesis chapter 12, as God sets out his promise to Abraham and he explains what his big plan is going to be that you then follow through the whole of the rest of the Bible. His intention in singling out this particular people, the people of Israel as they became, the children of Abraham, his intention of singling them out at the start of the Bible story was always for that people to be a blessing to the world around them. It was never simply to kind of single them out in order for them to be a holy huddle, a clique of niceness hiding away from the world. And so God's people in the Old Testament had to continually learn that they were to be a light to the nations. And they struggled with that. But actually, we today as the church still struggle in that way very often. That we sort of imagine that our purpose is to withdraw from the world, as if that's it. And and create this sort of community that's distinctive and different. And we are to be distinctive and different, but in order to reach the world to be an attractive community that draws others in. Just at the end of the reading from Acts chapter 2 that we're going to hear each of these weeks, the result of them living in this distinctive way where they're devoted to all these things and they're marked out by, by these different things, the result of that in the final verse is this, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see? The distinctiveness creates an attractive community. And that was certainly my experience as a 17-year-old non-Christian looking into Christian things through my local church and the youth group there. You know, I was struck by the message that I heard, but I was in many ways struck most of all by the love that I saw between the leaders of this little youth group and the kind of interest and genuine, sincere concern that they showed towards me and the others in this group. It was countercultural. It wasn't, you know, of course, you know, we had teachers at school and they show a certain sort of professional interest in you. But this was a genuine kind of, I am concerned for you as a person. I care about you, in a, you know, in, 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 in that kind of way. It wasn't the kind of interest that you find in other places. It was a genuine concern. And you found that amongst all the members of this group. And if they just preached theologically accurate talks and then gone home, I don't think I'd be standing here right now. And so all this means that if we just love like the world loves, we love people like us, the world will see nothing different. And there'll be nothing remotely attractive 
about us as a community. Now, of course, people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the message about Jesus in order to be saved. They can't be saved simply by being loved. But that message has to come in the context of a community of believers whose lives have clearly been impacted by the gospel. Otherwise, it's like a bunch of kind of sales representatives where the product they're trying to sell is healthy, delicious, nutritious food, but they themselves are malnourished, wasting away, and miserable. It doesn't add up. You know, something's wrong when that's happening. Last November, we presented a new vision for St. John's, to be living for Jesus and sharing his good news. And if we want to have that kind of impact on Hampstead and on North London and beyond, if we want to, to grow God's kingdom here, it starts with being a community where love is genuine and sincere and we are devoted to one another. Do you see? Not for our own sake, not because we want to create a holy huddle of cliqueiness, but in order to reach the world. Well, as we finish then, here are a few practical ways that we can show that love. They all begin with T, as it happens. We can love with our time. You know, I think in busy North London, it, 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 it's often not money that we lack, but it's time to give one another. Many of us are very careful to budget our money and to think strategically about what we spend it on and even to be incredibly generous with it. Do we have the same approach to our time? You know, carefully thinking over and praying about the best way to spend our time. It's a resource, isn't it? That we can use, and we have a choice. Do we spend it on this or do we spend it on that? So, for example, giving the time to linger with one another over coffee. That is a gift of time of devoting ourselves to one another, giving the time to commit to a weekly small group. It, it matters when we turn up and we are missed when we don't because we're part of the body. So we can love with our time. We can love them with our talent, using the gifts God has given us to serve those around us. Many of us are already doing that in many different ways and there are always opportunities to serve if you want to talk about that and what that might mean for you, do please get in touch with me. The third T is treasure. In Acts chapter 2, one of the distinctives of their love for one another is that they gave generously to one another. And again, many are giving generously already, and we're going to look at that particular mark of their love uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and we'll focus on giving specifically. The fourth T slightly more cheesily, is T, T-E-A, T. Opening our homes and love lives to, to one another, offering hospitality, realising you don't need the perfect flat, the perfect house to do that, you just need a kettle or a cooker or an open front door because it's not about competition, it's not about showing off, it's about opening our lives. And then a final T, even more of a stretch, texts. This is where technology can actually be a real benefit. It doesn't, it doesn't take much to send a quick, simple text message. How are you doing? How can I pray for you today? 
a word of encouragement, maybe following up a face-to-face conversation earlier in the week. It can be a really concrete, simple, practical way of showing love to one another as a community that isn't just about being together on a Sunday, but a community where we're serving God in his world all week long. So devote yourselves to one another. In in, in the third century, a Roman Christian named Tertullian wrote this of what non-Christians of his time were saying about Christians. He, He heard that they were saying, see how they love one another and how they are ready even to die for one another. Let's pray that that might be said by the watching world of us and that the Lord would then add to our number those who are being saved. Let's pray now. Father God, as we reflect honestly on our own lives, we know we so often fall short in our love for you and and in our love for your people. We pray as we've heard this challenge this morning that, that that would translate into real practical love for one another, not just being committed to the general principle, but thinking about those around us in our church family, in a small group, in other ways that we come into contact with one another. May we love as you have loved us. And as we seek to build a community of people who are devoted in love to one another, we pray that in turn that would impact the world around us. We pray for a distinctiveness, that people would see that there's something different about our church family because of how we treat one another, because of how we welcome all people. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.